Hey everybody, this is Steve Carroll, and this is the InBase Podcast. Today we'll be talking about hyperthermia in the ED. Just in time for the warmer months, at least here in the Northern Hemisphere, Dr. Andrea Sarchi wrote this script to discuss patients who are dangerously hot and how to manage them in ED. This episode was recorded by Jacob Schreiner, a third-year medical student at Emory University School of Medicine. As always, we'll start off with how to get the relevant history and exam findings, how to order the right tests, properly treat the patient, and get the right disposition. So let's get right to it. Here's hyperthermic emergencies in the ED. Hey everyone, Jake Schreiner and M2 working on EM Basic here again. Today, we're going to discuss heat illness, or hypothermia, which is a condition that occurs when a person's core body temperature gets too high as a result of a failure of thermoregulation. So it's important to note here that hypothermia is not the same as fever. Fever is an elevated body temperature due to cytokine activation that occurs during inflammatory states and is regulated by the hypothalamus. There are different degrees of the minor forms of heat illness, including heat cramps, head edema, heat syncope, prickly heat, and heat exhaustion. Classification of heat illness is controversial, and experts disagree about the categorization of each illness, as well as the temperatures and symptoms that define each one. Just know that they exist and represent different manifestations of heat illness in the body. A detailed discussion of each of these minor forms of heat illness is beyond the scope of today's podcast, so our main focus will be on the most severe form of heat illness, known as heat stroke. This episode is written by Andrea Sarchi, under the direction and supervision of Dr. Jason Mansour, an EM attending at Broward Health Medical Center. First, let's talk about some definitions. Heat stroke is defined as a core body temperature usually exceeding 40 degrees Celsius, which for my U.S. friends is 104 degrees Fahrenheit, with an associated central nervous system dysfunction and environmental heat exposure. Heat stroke can be further classified into exertional heat stroke and non-exertional heat stroke. So exertional heat stroke occurs during strenuous activity and is often seen in military personnel and athletes due to their rigorous training routines. In athletes, heat stroke is the third leading cause of death, with American football being responsible for the most heat stroke fatalities. These players are also at a tenfold higher risk for heat illness. Non-exertional heat stroke, also known as classic heat stroke, often occurs in the elderly and poor. The poor often lack adequate air conditioning and nutrition, while the elderly often have chronic underlying medical conditions that impair their thermal regulation. Heat illness causes the most weather-related deaths in the United States, and each year it claims more lives than floods, lightning, hurricanes, and tornadoes combined. Interestingly, during heat wave years in the United States, there are approximately 10 times as many deaths due to heat stroke as during non-heat wave years. During the heat wave of 1995, more than 700 heat-related deaths were reported in the Chicago area alone. In August of 2003, a record-setting heat wave in Europe killed 50,000 people. Therefore, heat stroke is an important condition that we as emergency physicians must be prepared to handle. So let's talk about entering the room and taking a history. When you enter the room of a patient with heat stroke, they will often be tachycardic, tachypnic, and hypotensive. And, of course, their temperature will be greater than 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. If the patient is able to communicate, they may complain of dizziness, weakness, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, increased thirst, or profuse sweating. Like hypothermia, the symptoms are nonspecific and may even be more subtle in the elderly. Exertional heat stroke is usually obvious when you take the history because the patient often collapses during strenuous activity. But with non-exertional heat stroke, the differential diagnosis is broader. 
Therefore, it's important to obtain a complete past medical history and list of medications if possible. Find out if the patient has any chronic diseases, such as alcoholism, schizophrenia, or cardiovascular disease, and if he or she is on any medications, such as diuretics, antihypertensives, neuroleptics, and anticholinergics. All of these factors can impair someone's ability to tolerate heat and can thus predispose to heat stroke. In addition, the setting is very important in the diagnosis of someone with an elevated core temperature. Did the symptoms start after the administration of general anesthesia? Is the patient on antidepressant or antipsychotic medications? Does the patient have a history of a thyroid disorder? As we'll see when we discuss the differential, a yes to any of those questions may suggest a diagnosis other than heat stroke. Also, find out from your pre-hospital providers what interventions were performed at the scene and if the patient used any supplements or illicit drugs. Finally, just take note that many patients with heat stroke are delirious upon arrival to the hospital. Therefore, the best history will often be from your pre-hospital providers. So let's move on to the physical exam. Just as a reminder, common vital sign abnormalities in heat stroke include tachycardia, tachypnea, and hypotension. When measuring the patient's temperature, it's important to use a rectal or esophageal thermometer as these are more accurate at high temperatures than a standard thermometer. Remember, we talked about the same thing in our hypothermia lecture in reference to measuring low temperatures. In the early stages of heat stroke, CNS dysfunction dominates and the patient could exhibit neurological signs. The more common signs include delirium, coma, and convulsions, but the patient can have nearly any neurologic abnormality. Other signs include strange behavior, hallucinations, and cerebellar dysfunction. In addition to assessing the patient for altered mental status and neurological abnormalities, it's important to evaluate the muscle compartments for sign of acute compartment syndrome and to examine all orifices for potential bleeding. A patient with severe exertional heat stroke will usually have muscle flaccidity, which is a word I don't get to say very often. If the patient instead has muscle rigidity, this suggests an alternative diagnosis, such as malignant hyperthermia or neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So earlier I said that hypothermic patients can present with severe sweating, and that could be true, but diaphoresis may or may not be present. It depends on the patient's underlying medical conditions, how fast the heat stroke developed, and his or her current hydration status. So don't use this as an absolute sign. Other signs you may see on physical exam include flushing from cutaneous vasodilation, crackles resulting from non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and excessive bleeding due to disruptions in coagulation. Finally, since hepatic injury is also a common complication, jaundice will often appear between 24 and 72 hours after the onset of severe heat stroke. So let's just go back and quickly summarize what we've discussed so far. Heat stroke is defined as a core body temperature exceeding 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit with an associated central nervous system dysfunction and environmental heat exposure. It's further classified into exertional and non-exertional heat stroke. Exertional heat stroke occurs during strenuous activity and is often seen in military personnel and athletes, while non-exertional heat stroke, which is also known as classic heat stroke, often occurs in the elderly and poor. When you enter the room of a patient with heat stroke, he or she will often be tachycardic, tachypnic, and hypotensive, and will, of course, have a temperature above 40 degrees Celsius. Common complaints include dizziness, weakness, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, increased thirst, and profuse sweating. Be sure to find out if the patient has any chronic diseases, such as alcoholism, schizophrenia, or cardiovascular disease, and if he or she is on any medications, 
such as diuretics, antihypertensives, neuroleptics, and anticholinergics. All of these factors can predispose to heat stroke. And remember that the setting is very important in making the diagnosis. Find out if the symptoms started after the administration of general anesthesia, if the patient is on any antidepressants or antipsychotic medications, and if he or she has a history of a thyroid disorder. Finally, ask your pre-hospital providers what interventions were performed at the scene and if the patient uses any supplements or illicit drugs. During the physical exam, there's some things to remember. It's important to use a rectal or esophageal thermometer to obtain an accurate reading of the patient's core temperature. In the early stages of heat stroke, the patient may experience neurologic signs such as delirium, coma, convulsions, amongst many others. So be sure to evaluate the muscle compartments for signs of acute compartment syndrome and to examine all orifices for potential bleeding. A patient with severe exertional heat stroke will usually have muscle flaccidity. Other possible findings on physical exam include flushing, jaundice, excessive bleeding, remember they have disruptions in their coagulation, and crackles on auscultation of the lungs. Sweating can be profuse, but it's dependent on several factors and may or may not be present. Okay, let's move on to the diagnostic workup. A baseline CBC and CMP should be obtained in all patients you suspect of having heat stroke. The CMP may show hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, and, in the case of exertional heat stroke, an elevated BUN and creatinine levels due to acute renal failure. The acute renal failure may be due to rhabdomyolysis, and thus a serum CK and urine myoglobin should be ordered as well. Rhabdomyolysis can also cause hypocalcemia and hyperphosphatemia, so you should also check the CMP for these abnormalities. So if your patient comes in with an altered mental status, then a finger stick glucose should be obtained immediately, as the CMP will take some time to come back. In addition, if you suspect a CNS cause of altered mental status, then a head CT and lumbar puncture are appropriate. Also, remember how we mentioned earlier that heat stroke can cause liver injury? Therefore, the CMP will often show markedly increased transaminase levels. But keep in mind that these changes might not show up until a day or two after the onset of heat stroke. The next labs to order are a lactate level and either an arterial or venous blood gas. A metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis are common in classic heat stroke, which remember is non-exertional heat stroke, while a pure lactic acidosis is usually seen in exertional heat stroke. If you suspect a medication effect as the cause of hyperthermia, then a tox screen should be ordered. Ethanol, cocaine, amphetamines, salicylates, hallucinogens, and lithium are all testable and can contribute to hyperthermia. You should also order an ECG and chest x-ray. The chest x-ray may demonstrate pulmonary edema, while the ECG may show dysrhythmias, conduction abnormalities, nonspecific ST, T-wave changes, or heat-related ischemia or infarction. So now let's discuss the differential diagnosis of heat stroke. It's important to note that there's no single diagnostic test that can definitively confirm or exclude heat stroke. When there's a history that the patient collapsed under conditions of heat stress, a rapid improvement in mental status and vital signs upon cooling confirms the diagnosis. On the other hand, if the patient does not respond to cooling measures and doesn't recover neurologically, you should consider other causes of fever and coma. So let's discuss these other causes. Shaking chills can suggest fever due to an altered hypothalamic set point, as seen in meningitis or encephalitis. If the patient has a thyroid gland that is enlarged or nodular, this can suggest thyroid storm. However, a normal thyroid 
doesn't exclude that diagnosis. Fortunately, thyroid storm is rare, and rapid cooling is also critical in this condition, so cooling measures would treat both possibilities of heat stroke or thyroid storm. Be sure to order thyroid function tests if you suspect it. I want to briefly talk about anticholinergics. An overdose of anticholinergics has very similar findings to heat stroke. Many physicians will recall anticholinergic poisoning with the classic patient description of mad as a hatter, hot as a hair, red as a beet, dry as a bone, and blind as a bat. So many of those symptoms overlap with the symptoms of heat stroke. So what do we do? One way to help differentiate anticholinergic poisoning from heat stroke is to look at the patient's pupils. Constricted or normal pupils are present in most patients with heat stroke, while dilated pupils are usually present in patients with anticholinergic poisoning. If the patient has been taking first or second generation antipsychotic medications and presents with hyperthermia, muscle rigidity, altered mental status, labile blood pressures, tremors, and or muscle jerking, then you should consider neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Of these many signs and symptoms, muscle rigidity will most likely help you distinguish this diagnosis from the more flaccid muscle tones of heat stroke. Another condition that can be mistaken for heat stroke is serotonin syndrome. This can be caused by many different drugs, such as antidepressants, opioids, and CNS stimulants. It classically occurs in a patient who is taking an MAO inhibitor in combination with an SSRI, tricyclic antidepressant, or opioid. The triad of serotonin syndrome includes cognitive changes, such as headache and convulsions, autonomic hyperactivity, such as tachycardia and diaphoresis, and neuromuscular abnormalities, such as hyperreflexia and myoclonus. In a patient who presents with elevated core temperature after treatment with succinylcholine or inhaled anesthetic agents, malignant hyperthermia should be suspected. Early clinical findings include muscle rigidity, such as masseter stiffness, sinus tachycardia, and skin cyanosis with modeling. Marked hyperthermia with temperatures exceeding 45 degrees Celsius or 113 degrees Fahrenheit occurs shortly after onset. So the key to making this diagnosis is the presence of muscle rigidity and the history of exposure to anesthetic agents. So let's go back and summarize the lab workup and differential diagnosis. You should get a baseline CBC and CMP on all patients you suspect are suffering from heat stroke. The CMP may show hypocalcemia, hyperphosphatemia, elevated transaminase levels, and or elevated BUN and creatinine secondary to acute renal failure from hypovolemia or rhabdomyolysis. Because of the risk of rhabdomyolysis and heat stroke, a serum CK and urine myoglobin should be ordered as well. A lactate level may be elevated in exertional heat stroke, and an ABG or VBG may show a metabolic acidosis and respiratory alkalosis in classic or non-exertional heat stroke. If you suspect a medication effect of hyperthermia, then a tox screen is appropriate. Other tests you should order are a chest x-ray to look for pulmonary edema and an ECG to look for dysrhythmias and other abnormalities. So when you're thinking about your differential, consider other causes of fever and coma if the patient does not respond to cooling measures and doesn't recover neurologically. Remember we talked about shaking chills, suggesting a fever from meningitis or encephalitis. An enlarged or nodular thyroid gland can suggest thyroid storm. And a patient with enlarged pupils may have anticholinergic poisoning. 
a person taking first or second generation antipsychotics who presents with muscle rigidity, muscle jerking, and altered mental status may have neuroleptic malignant syndrome. A patient taking an MAO inhibitor in combination with an SSRI, TCA, or opioid who have cognitive changes, autonomic hyperactivity, and neuromuscular abnormalities may have serotonin syndrome. And finally, a patient with elevated core temperature after being treated with an anesthetic agent may have malignant hyperthermia. All right, so now we're going to talk about how to manage a patient suffering from heat stroke. As always, assess the patient's airway, breathing, and circulation first, and use BLS or ACLS protocols as needed. The key principle to keep in mind when treating a patient with heat stroke is that morbidity and mortality are directly related to how long the patient's core temperature has been elevated. So your priority should be rapidly cooling the patient. You must also monitor the patient closely during your treatment. Vital sign measurements should be obtained frequently and the patient should be placed on a cardiac monitor and continuous pulse oximetry. A Foley catheter is also helpful for monitoring the patient's fluid status and renal function. Finally, you should continuously monitor the patient's core temperature with a rectal or esophageal probe. So how do we cool a patient with heat stroke? The main techniques used include evaporative cooling, cold water immersion, water ice therapy, ice pack therapy, IV cooling, and thoracic and peritoneal lavage. With any of these measures, cooling should be stopped when the patient's temperature is between 38 and 39 degrees Celsius, or 100.4 to 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, in order to decrease the risk of iatrogenic hypothermia. Unfortunately, there are no definitive studies to support any one particular approach, so the method you choose will be based on the resources available and your best clinical judgment. Let's discuss what we do know about each technique. So some of the names sound similar for these therapies, so I'm going to try and keep them as separate as possible. So we're going to start off with ice water immersion. Ice water immersion is likely the most effective way to rapidly lower a patient's core body temperature, and when possible, it's often preferred in the treatment of exertional heat stroke. To perform this technique, place the patient in a tub filled with very cold water. Most textbooks recommend temperatures between 2 and 15 degrees Celsius, or 35 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Ice water is ideal, but even lukewarm water will help. Be sure to keep the water cold during the cooling process and to frequently stir the water so the temperature is distributed evenly. One downside of ice water immersion is that it's associated with increased mortality when used in the elderly. Therefore, we usually avoid this technique in patients with classic heat stroke. Another thing to keep in mind with ice water immersion is that it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, to use for complicated patients who require tracheal intubation, medications, IV fluid, and or close monitoring. In such patients, you should just use a different method, such as evaporative cooling. So let's talk about evaporative cooling. With this technique, you should remove all of the patient's clothes and spray them with a mist of lukewarm water. Fans are then pointed towards the patient and used to blow air over the moist skin. The water acts to absorb the heat and the fan evaporates the water, thus removing heat from the patient. Evaporative cooling is more tolerable and less drastic than ice water immersion, and it's non-invasive and easy to perform. So this makes it the method most often used for classic heat stroke. Just as a side note, some patients may be agitated from altered mental status or shivering as a result of the cooling process. 
Since agitation and shivering can both generate heat, you can administer a short-acting benzodiazepine, such as Ativan 1-2 mg IV, to suppress this response. Another cooling technique that works rapidly but requires a tub of ice water is the aptly named water ice therapy, and this is different from what we talked about before, which is the ice water immersion. This is water ice therapy. With this method, you place the patient supine on a porous stretcher and position the stretcher over a tub of ice water. Some lucky medical personnel then continuously take ice water from the bath and pour it onto the patient. At the same time, other personnel should use ice packs to massage major muscle groups to increase skin vasodilation and thus allow further heat loss. In the many cases when a tub is not available, an alternative method is to place a few sheets under the patient, cover him or her completely with ice, and then wrap him or her with the sheet. After some of the ice has melted, be sure to replenish it immediately. If ice water techniques or evaporative cooling is not an option, an alternative cooling method is to apply ice packs to the patient's neck, groin, and axillae. These areas are adjacent to major blood vessels, and thus they allow for greater heat dissipation. In the rare cases where invasive measures are needed, cold fluid thoracic and peritoneal lavage can be used. Although it's very effective, cold fluid lavage should be used as a last resort because it's an invasive measure with inherent risks. It should never be used in a pregnant patient or patients with prior abdominal surgery. Adjunctive cooling measures, which may be helpful, include the use of cooled oxygen, cooling blankets, and IV fluids cooled to 22 degrees Celsius, which is 71.6 degrees Fahrenheit. I also want to mention here that pharmacotherapy is not required when managing heat stroke. Dantrolene is not indicated and is only effective in conditions such as malignant hyperthermia or neuromuscular malignant syndrome. Likewise, acetaminophen and aspirin are ineffective because the mechanism of heat stroke does not involve a change in the hypothalamic set point. Furthermore, these medications can exacerbate complications such as hepatic injury and DIC. Remember, we did talk about using a short-acting benzodiazepine such as Ativan, but that's only to reduce movement when the patient is agitated or shivering from the cooling process. If there is any diagnostic uncertainty, then it's imperative that you consider sepsis in the differential and empirically administer broad-spectrum antibiotics while cooling measures are implemented. Finally, I'd like to just make one special note about exertional heat stroke in the setting of major sporting events. Such large-scale events often have medical treatment tents that are staffed with the physician and have the tools and capabilities to provide advanced treatment. If you find yourself working in this setting and the patient suspected of heat stroke comes in, then you should immediately begin cooling the patient after obtaining the patient's vital signs, a finger stick glucose, and a serum sodium concentration. The preferred cooling method for an athlete in this setting would be ice water immersion. You should cool the patient to 38.9 degrees Celsius, 102 degrees Fahrenheit, on site before transporting to the hospital. If the treatment tent isn't equipped to cool the patient, or in all other situations excluding non-exertional heat stroke, the patient should be immediately transferred to the closest ED. Alright, now let's move on to the disposition. Almost all patients who develop heat stroke are hospitalized for a period of observation and monitoring. If the patient has signs of multi-organ dysfunction, then you should admit him or her to the ICU. In the case of healthy athletes who recover rapidly with cooling and have no complications, they can usually be discharged after a period of observation with follow-up arrangements. There are no published guidelines on the length of observation necessary, so use your best clinical judgment here.
When it comes to returning to play, athletes should avoid any significant physical exertion until they have completely recovered and all blood tests are within normal limits. Athletes should take a common-sense approach with a gradual reintroduction of physical activity leading up to full competition. The American College of Sports Medicine suggests that athletes may resume full competition once they've been able to participate in full training in the heat for two to four weeks without adverse effects. As with mild TBI, never clear any athlete to return to play from the ED. All clearances to return to play need to be made by another provider in the outpatient setting. Athletes should be told that they cannot return to play until they are cleared by another provider. Let's do a quick summary of the management and disposition for patients with heat stroke. The ABCs should be assessed first, and the patient should be monitored with a cardiac monitor, frequent vital sign measurements, pulse oximetry, and continuous core temperature monitoring. Remember that your priority is to rapidly cool the patient to a temperature between 38 and 39 degrees Celsius, which is 100.4 and 102.2 degrees Fahrenheit, using whatever resources and methods are available. Ice water immersion is often the preferred method for treatment of exertional heat stroke. For ice water immersion, place the patient in a tub filled with very cold water at 2 to 14 degrees Celsius or 35 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit and stir the water frequently throughout the process. The downsides of ice water immersion therapy are that it provides extremely limited access for IV fluids, intubation, monitoring, and it is associated with an increased risk of mortality in the elderly. Therefore, you should avoid this technique in those with classic heat stroke and choose an alternative such as evaporative cooling. With evaporative cooling, the patient is sprayed with a mist of lukewarm water and fans are pointed towards the patient to blow air over the moist skin and evaporate the water. Another option is water ice therapy. Remember, that's different than ice water immersion. Water ice therapy is where you place the patient supine on a porous stretcher and position the stretcher over a tub of ice water. Medical personnel then continuously take ice water from the bath and pour it on the patient. At the same time, other personnel should use ice packs to massage major muscle groups. If a tub is not available, you can place a few sheets under the patient, cover him or her completely with ice, and then wrap the sheet around them. If evaporative cooling or ice water techniques are not an option, you can apply ice packs to the patient's neck, groin, and axilla. A technique of last resort is thoracic or peritoneal lavage, as these are invasive procedures and are contraindicated in pregnant patients and those with prior abdominal surgery. So remember, pharmacologic therapy is not required in the treatment of heat stroke, and there is no role for dantrolene or antipyretic agents such as aspirin or acetaminophen. If the etiology of the patient's hyperthermia is unclear and infection is a possibility, then empiric broad-spectrum antibiotics are indicated while implementing cooling measures. In the special case of exertional heat stroke at a major sporting event or endurance event such as a marathon, it is best to cool the patient on-site before transporting to hospital, so long as advanced treatment tents and appropriate resources are available. For disposition, nearly all patients who develop heat stroke should be hospitalized for a period of observation and monitoring. In healthy athletes who recover rapidly with cooling and have no complications, they can often be discharged after a period of observation with follow-up arrangements. When returning to play, athletes should avoid significant physical exertion until they have completely recovered and all blood tests are within normal limits. They should take a gradual approach towards their reintroduction to physical activity 
and should not return to play until cleared by another provider in the outpatient setting. Remember, you cannot clear a patient to return to play in the ED. All right, everyone. Well, that wraps it up for this episode on hyperthermia. As usual, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, feel free to email Dr. Carroll at steve at embasic.org. Hey, everyone. This is Steve again. Thanks again to Dr. Sarchi for that great review of hyperthermic emergencies in the ED, and thanks to Jacob Schreiner for recording the episode. Hopefully this episode will help you be much better prepared for the next time you see this in your ED. Before we go, just want to put a plug in for our bandwidth sponsor, EB Medicine. They have a review of heat emergencies from August 2014 that you should definitely check out that will help you supplement this episode. Residents can get free access to all their great resources by going to the EB Medicine EM Basic page at ebmedicine.net slash embasic or follow the link at embasic.org. And for any attendings out there, you can get a discount on their products that offer CME by going to that same page. That's it for now. Steve Carroll, EM Basic, signing off.